Welcome back to The Shaping of the Modern World. I'm Stephen Remy. I'm a professor of history at Brooklyn College of the City University of New York. This podcast series supports my course, The Shaping of the Modern World. In this episode, Globalization Unbound and Fractured. Historians have long debated the origins of globalization. Some have argued that it is as old as humanity itself. That is, human settlement across the world comprised the earliest form of globalization. Others have focused on the late 15th century as the starting point. That's when we began this course. Before then, the world's major civilizations were connected regionally, not globally. It was only in the 16th century that we see the exchange of peoples, ideas, religions, commodities, plant and animal species, and diseases connect on a truly global scale. Advances in two crucial areas, transportation and communication technologies, accelerated these exchanges. This acceleration was not impeded by the gradual replacement of empires with nation states. Another acceleration of global interconnectedness began in the second half of the 20th century. Once again, transportation and communication are at the heart of this recent acceleration, or what I'm calling globalization unbound. But then came the pandemic. So this week, I want you to think about what the current pandemic has meant to globalization. Let's start in the birthplace of the human species, the Afar Triangle. The Afar Triangle is a low-lying region bordering the Red Sea and spread out over the nations of Ethiopia, Djibouti, and Eritrea. It forms part of East Africa's Great Rift Valley. The Russian-born writer Anna Bodkin was traveling here when the news of the pandemic broke. Bodkin was researching a book on human origins. The day she landed in the capital of Ethiopia, Addis Ababa, was the day that country's government confirmed its first case of COVID-19. My journey, she wrote after returning home, became a real-time passage through a world undergoing a dramatic and unprecedented remaking. She describes Afar as a womb. Fossils of the first human species were found here and the remains of some of our earliest Homo sapiens ancestors. She was reminded of a 2016 study that revealed that 30% of all protein adaptations since humans' divergence with chimpanzees have been driven by viruses. Scientists have long known that the constant battle between pathogens meaning a bacterium, virus, or other microorganism that causes a disease, and their hosts have been a key driver in our evolution. But now we have a better idea of just how extensive the impact of viruses has been on human evolution. Bodkin points out that these adaptations first took place in Afar. This is how she put it, and here I'm quoting Anna Bodkin. This is where we learned to walk on two feet, to love, to kill, to mourn, to talk, to tell stories. This is the last place all of us, before we became multiple and scattered, knowingly shared the same story until the pandemic. 
not the Black Plague, not the transatlantic slave trade, nor the two world wars, not the 9-11 terrorist attacks, have affected everyone on every continent as instantly and intimately and acutely as the spread of coronavirus, uniting us as we fear and think and hope about the same thing. It's quite an experience to teach a course on the history of the modern world in the midst of a world-altering event. Over the last two months, media outlets everywhere have been filled with commentary and speculation about how the pandemic is changing the world. What can the study of history contribute to this conversation? The most obvious contribution is that historians can tell us about past instances instances of pandemics, how they spread, how human communities tried to cope, and how they ended. You may have noticed that there's been a lot of attention paid to the pandemic I talked about at the beginning of this course, the Black Death of the 14th century. Among many other things, historians have told us of the origins of the term quarantine in the 1370s when the Black Death hit the Mediterranean port city of Ragusa, today known as Dubrovnik in Croatia. The great council of the city turned to its chief physician for advice. He recommended setting up a space outside the city's walls where citizens and outsiders could be treated. This move was inspired by an early version of contagion theory, keep healthy and sick people separated. Unfortunately, it did not work very well. So the Great Council passed a 30-day isolation law known as a Trentino. The law mandated that anybody visiting Ragusa had to remain in isolation for one month, that no one from Ragusa could visit the isolation area, and that anyone disobeying the law would be fined and required to go into isolation for a month. Over the next 80 years, versions of this law were applied in other busy port cities like Marseille, Venice, Pisa, and Genoa. In the process, the length of the isolation period was extended to 40 days and became known as a quarantino, derived from the Italian word for 40, quaranta. There's also been a lot of references to the deadly influenza pandemic that swept the world after World War I. But it's important to remember that historians are fundamentally concerned with change over time. So we also pay close attention to what is different about the past, not just what seems to be familiar. To put it another way, history doesn't repeat itself. It recombines in unpredictable ways. So in addition to asking, how is COVID-19 similar to the Black Death or the post-World War I influenza pandemic, we ask, What's different about this one? Anna Bodkin's comment is a good place to start. The coronavirus has affected everyone on every continent, instantly and intimately and acutely, uniting us as we fear and think and hope about the same thing. The journalist Joshua Keating goes even further. On the website Slate, he argued that the coronavirus is what he called the first truly global event. That's quite a claim. What does he mean? By global event, he means an event that is unprecedented because it has affected almost everyone on Earth right around the same time. 
It is the condition of globalization unbound, the planet's hyper-interconnectedness that produced this result. And it's different from an event that has a rolling and unevenly distributed impact on the world, or a phenomenon like climate change, which, as one philosopher put it, is too massively distributed in time and space for us to get our heads around it and to act decisively. So how should students of history think about the pandemic's effect on our interconnected world now? What can the study of history suggest to us about the past and the future? 20th and early 20th, first century globalization had plenty of critics before the economic crisis of 2008 and the emergence of ultranationalist, anti-liberal, and anti-globalist leaders and pol political parties around the world. Then came the pandemic. To help us think about the question of the pandemic's impact, let's consult with scientists who study fossils and evolutionary biology. The standard scientific interpretation of the evolution of life on Earth was proposed in the 19th century by the British naturalist Charles Darwin. Darwin claimed that species evolved slowly and steadily over long periods of time. He believed the fossil record would prove this, and to a certain extent, it has. But the problem is that the fossil record does not give us a complete picture of such small, steady changes in morphology, meaning the physical forms of living creatures. Darwin assumed that the fossil record was incomplete, a reasonable assumption. But in the early 1970s, two American scientists, Niles Eldridge and Stephen Jay Gould, proposed a different theory. The fossil record, they believed, was not quite as incomplete as Darwin believed. Its absences were trying to tell us something. Eldridge and Gould proposed that evolution was actually not so steady. Instead, they argued that the morphology of species is generally stable over long periods of time. This stability, or equilibrium, is punctuated from time to time, and these punctuations generate relatively rapid adaptations that ultimately produce new species. For Eldridge and Gould, punctuations were produced by environmental changes, which in some cases could be quite abrupt and violent, like an erupting volcano, or when a meteor strikes the Earth. Crucially, these punctuations have the greatest initial impact on smaller, more geographically isolated populations. The gene pools of such populations tend to vary more widely. Eldridge and Gould believe this variety gave them a greater adaptive, adaptive advantage when a punctuation occurred. Then, after having adapted to new conditions, the most successful new types spread to wider populations. Eldridge and Gould called this punctuated equilibrium, and it offers students of history a useful way of thinking about historical change. For one thing, it can serve as a corrective to the assumption that history is a story of more or less steady progress. For another, the punctuated equilibrium model forces us to reckon with the importance of contingency, that is, the unforeseen, the sudden, the accidental, it also forces us to pay close attention to what continues, what changes, and what disappears after an equilibrium is punctured. The current pandemic is an equilibrium puncturing event 
if there ever was one. If there is a consensus emerging among experienced commentators on the world, including historians, it is that globalization unbound will be transformed into globalization fractured. What might that look like? Go back to Anna Bodkin's and Joshua Keating's assessments. Bodkin sees the pandemic as playing a unifying role in our lives, mainly because of the way we are experiencing it together. But Keating emphasizes its fracturing effect, especially when it comes to our political institutions and structures. Maybe they're both right. The pandemic is both a unifying and a fracturing force. Globalization unbound made the pandemic possible, and fighting it effectively demands a global response in the compiling and sharing of data and in the search for a vaccine and a cure. But at the same time, it is disrupting globalization as it developed after World War II. The pandemic has strengthened border controls, produced quarantines, reduced travel, and disrupted supply chains. It may also intensify nationalism and rivalries between states in ways that recall the hyper-nationalistic world of the late 19th century. The pandemic is intensifying a challenge to the neoliberal faith in smaller, less intrusive government. It will most likely also accelerate the process of reshoring that is the opposite of offshoring, in which the production of goods is returned to the country in which it originated. This disruption may produce new forms of networked local responses in places where coordinated federal action is failing or absent. The United States is a good example. But this is more than about action by the state at whatever level. Cultural values and practices play a role. It is no accident that Taiwan, South Korea, and Singapore, societies that place a high value on conformity and social cohesion, were more successful this past spring in responding to the crisis than hyper-individualistic societies like the United States. Historians are no better than anyone else at predicting the future, but we can be pretty certain about two things. There will always be punctuations and that humanity has proven itself to be extraordinarily adaptable when the unforeseen, or at least the unprepared for, arrives. Thanks for listening. Be well and take care of each other.